Good evening. Tonight is Thursday night, April 22nd, 2021. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. It is fantastic to be together with you, and I'm grateful to every one of you for joining in, giving of your time, so that we can have this opportunity to study together. I'd like to start with Pirkei Avos, and this week I want to draw your attention to one paragraph, one Mishnah, in the third chapter, chapter 3 of Pirkei Avos, which reads as follows. It's the second Mishnah in the third chapter of Pirkei Avos. Rebbe Chanina Sgan HaKohanim Omer. Rebbe Chanina, the officiant to the Kohanim, the priests, he used to say, Pray for the welfare of the government. I'm sorry. If it were not for the fact that the government imposed restrictions and laws that people obeyed, each person would swallow the other person up alive. Wow. That's graphic. Now, I want you to keep in mind, Rebbe Hanina was not some kind of secular liberal. Rebbe Hanina witnessed the destruction of the Second Temple. He saw what Rome did to Israel in general and Jerusalem in particular. And still, with all the destruction Rome caused us, Rebbe Hanina saw how much worse we would have been without it. Based on this Mishnah, we say a prayer for Canada. We are praying for the welfare of the country where we live. It does not necessarily mean that we agree with the policies of the government. It does not mean that those in charge are those we would have chosen or tried to choose. That's got nothing to do with it. What we're doing is we're asking God to bless those who are in charge of the government where we are and to provide for them wisdom to make good decisions. This Mishnah reflects the most basic role of government and it is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago to keep people from swallowing each other up alive, to maintain order, to prevent one person harming another. Now, there is a related principle but it's a principle that has more force to it. And that is the principle, which we've discussed before, Dina de Malchusa Dina. The law of a government or a sovereign state or a political entity is the law according to Jewish law. That means that there is a religious obligation, a Jewish halachic obligation to follow, to observe, to obey the laws of Canada of Quebec, of Montreal, here of Hampstead as well. Especially those laws that are designed to protect 
each person from each other. For example, COVID regulations. And in those places where it is more common for these laws to be ignored, there are several consequences. Number one, there is Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name, because people see people violating these laws. They appear to be Jews, and it makes people think that Jews don't care about keeping our community safe. God forbid. It is a violation of Dina de Mahusa Dina, a violation of our obligation to observe the laws of the place where we live. Because the, as I just showed you, protecting each other from harm is the most basic obligation that a government has. And that's what these laws are intended to do. You or I may agree or disagree from our lay perspective of which ones we like and which ones we don't like, but Dina Malchuzadina doesn't give me the right to decide which laws I'm going to observe. I am required to observe them. Likewise, those individuals who are not observing COVID regulations are in a much more serious violation of the Torah's commandments, Vinish Martim to be exceedingly careful concerning our health. And that means the health of others as well. But also, in addition to all of that, what we see from our Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, we see it happening today. Ish Esreyehu Chayim Bolo, a person who is swallowing up the life of his fellow through transmission of disease. Throughout this year, those areas, those individuals that have been less cautious about COVID restrictions have seen increased infections increased hospitalizations, and Rahman God should protect us, increased deaths. That is literally, not literally, figuratively, one person swallowing up the other by not following these rules. And all of that is warned against in our Mishnah. So let's start with prayer, as our Mishnah indicates, to pray that government officials will make the right decisions and that medical experts will find helpful therapies. But we have to take the next step as well, Dina Dina, to obligate us to follow these directions. I'd like to share some background that will help us understand the book of Ruth when we read it in several weeks on Shavuos. And I want to focus tonight on the second chapter of the book of Ruth. <clears throat> so we started talking about it last week and the week before. Naomi and Ruth come back to Beis Lechem which is just south of Jerusalem, the place where Naomi had lived her whole life. 
And now she's returning to Jewish women by themselves, alone, no money, no property. So what happens to two Jewish women on their own, impoverished in Israel about 3,000 years ago? Remember, there's no king, there's no government, there's no bureaucracy, there's no welfare system. How do people like Rus and Naomi support themselves? The answer to that question is in this week's Parsha. Our Parsha, this Shabbos, is the double Parsha, Acharimos Kedoshim, but in the second part, the Parsha of Kedoshim, we learn the following mitzvah. The Torah is addressing farmers who live in the land of Israel, and the Torah says, when you shall harvest your field. You planted, it's grown, now it's time to harvest. Don't harvest in the corners of your field. Draw an imaginary line delineating the four corners of your field and don't harvest there. Your workers don't go there. The idea, of course, is that those who are in need will go to those corners and they will collect there and they will be able to take that food for themselves. But not only in the corners, also, don't pick up the individual stalks that, is, that have fallen as the workers go down a road to pick the crops, little pieces fall. Don't tell your workers, don't pick up the little pieces that fall. Rather, those who are in need, those who are poor, they will walk behind your workers and they will be able to pick up the little pieces that have fallen. For you, the owner, it's insignificant, but they will be able to support themselves from those gleanings. Finally, uperet karmachalosalakate. When the workers go bush by bush, let's say picking off berries, for example. So inevitably, when they make the first pass, they'll leave a few on the, on the bush. Don't let your workers go back for a second pass. The second pass will be made by others, those who are needy, and those few berries that are left on the bush or those few uh, fruits or vegetables that are left there after the workers take their first pass, let that be for those who are in need. Let that be for those who are impoverished, those who are in need. I am the Lord your God. So that's the mitzvah in our parsha. We refer to these three, leket, shikha, and peyach. Leket is what falls to the ground. Shikha, that which is left on the plant. Peya, that which is in the corners of the fields. And that is what Ruth does. The Hema Bo Beis Lechem Betchilas Ketzir At the end of the first chapter, we learn that 
Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the harvest of the wheat crop? Ruth says to Naomi, I will go to a field and I will pick up the gleanings left behind by the workers because that's what the system is. That's how people who are in need provide for themselves. But there's a question with this system. And that is, it is terribly inefficient. Imagine if you ever took your children or your grandchildren or you yourself to a place like Quinn Farms, apple picking. So, okay, everybody goes and they pick apples from the trees. Okay, what do you see when you go to a place like that? You see apples on the ground everywhere. There's so much waste in a place like that. Because who's doing the picking? <laughs> I did some picking. My kids, my grandchildren did picking. They're not exactly the most experienced apple pickers. So a couple fall. A couple times they take a bite when it comes off the tree. They step on a few. A lot of it gets ruined. Okay, so if you go to Quinn Farms, it's entertainment, so you pay a fee. It turns out when I worked it out that the apples at Quinn Farms are about triple the price of apples at, let's say, IGA. Okay, fine, but it's, it's, a, it's an experience, it's entertainment, the kids love it, fine, that's great. But as social policy, Leket, Shikha, and Peya looks like a failure. Let me give you a much better idea. Let the owner of the field with his seasoned, experienced employees collect it all in the corners, what falls down, come back a second pass, collect it all and give a portion to the poor. They will get much more. There will be much more because there's less waste. So actually those in need will do better with this kind of a system. In fact, this was also done with a smaller amount for those who couldn't make it to a field. Those who were sick, God forbid, those who were disabled, they had no choice other than to receive this kind of handout. But Leket, Shikha, and Peya was the main system for most, even though it's so inefficient, for a very important reason. There's a famous passage in the Rambam, Maimonides. Many of us are familiar with it because it is printed in the High Holiday Maksar. In many editions, in the Birnbaum edition of the Maksar, eight degrees of charity. The Rambam delineates the mitzvah of tzedakah there's a lower level and there's a higher level. The highest level of tzedakah, the eighth degree of tzedakah, is when you don't give anything to the person who is in need. Rather, you assist them in giving them a job so that they can earn their own income.
lower level is where you give them money, but you do it anonymously. Lower than that is where you give them money, but it's no longer anonymous. The lowest is where you give it to them, but you do it resentfully, with a bad mood, without any nice words. Let me ask you a question. I've got a different system. I've got a different eight degrees of charity. The lowest level of charity is $100. The next highest level is $200. The next highest level is $400. And the highest level is $10,000. Why isn't that the order of the degrees of charity of the Rambam? The answer is simple, but it's very, very important. Because the quality of the mitzvah of tzedakah is not the amount. It's rather the level of self-esteem the recipient retains. And that's the benefit of Leket, Shikha, and Peya. The person in need is doing the same work for themselves that the workers are doing for pay for the owner of the field. And, and this is the critical point, the person in need is indistinguishable from the worker who is being paid for his work. If you're standing at the side of the field, you would not be able to tell which is which, who is who. And that needy person who was working in the field comes home at the end of the day and enjoys the fruits of her labor. And this is what happens in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is where this system of social policy, we see it come to life. Because in chapter two of the book of Ruth, Ruth collects Leket, Shikha, and Pera. She appears no different than the other workers that are in the field. And she brings home more than enough food for Naomi and for herself to enjoy and even to have some left over. It may not be the most efficient system based on the number of bushels collected, but it is certainly the most successful system for imparting self-esteem and social connection within the community. And the mitzvah of Leket, Shikha, and Peah in our Parsha, just like the levels of charity of the Rambam, teach us that this is the highest priority. Now, there remain two more systems that will be a background to parts of the story of the Book of Ruth that will all together form a Torah social policy. And I hope to share that with you over the coming weeks. You will be happy to know 
that there is a newly identified COVID syndrome. Just one more thing to worry about. This is based on an article written by a psychologist. His name is Dr. Adam Grant. It appeared a couple of days ago in the New York Times. And he explains as follows. In psychology, we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. Flourishing is the peak of well-being. You have a strong sense of meaning, mastery, and mattering to others. Depression is the valley of ill-being. You feel despondent, drained, and worthless. Languishing is the middle child. It's the void between depression and flourishing. Languishing is the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on worth. Now, this is not burnout because we still have energy. It's not depression because we don't feel hopeless. We just feel somewhat joyless and aimless. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if we're muddling through our days and it may be the most dominant emotion of 2021. I think there's a lot of wisdom in thinking about languishing as a way of describing what so many of us are going through. If you're concerned about this condition, you can see the article in the New York Times. You can see other professional sources. You may want to get expert input in how to deal with it. But there is a spiritual parallel there is spiritual languishing, and that is addressed by our Parsha. Again, our Parsha, the Shabbos, is the double portion, Achrei Mos Kedoshim. I'm focusing now on the second half, Kedoshim. The Parsha of Kedoshim is a potpourri of mitzvos, commandments of all kinds ritual commandments and social commandments and individual commandments and collective commandments, there are more mitzvahs in this parsha than in any other single parsha of the entire Torah. And they are introduced with these words, this exhortation, this starting gun, kedoshim tiyu, be holy. Now, what does that mean? Be holy. 
What is lacking in the mitzvos themselves that we will learn about in the parsha, such that a preamble is needed, a go get them is needed at the beginning. So I want to share with you an idea of Aviva Zornberg. She addresses this question and she likens it to, you may remember, the Mozart scene in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. You may remember this film. It was a great movie, The Shawshank Redemption, a difficult movie. It takes place in a maximum security prison. But if you remember the movie, you remember may remember a scene where all of a sudden the prison yard is suddenly invaded by the sounds of a Mozart aria. The hero, Andy, in a transgressive act that earns him two weeks in solitary, has locked himself into the warden's office and is playing the aria over the hissing speakers of the prison. Everyone from prisoners to warders stops in their tracks. Routine is disrupted by the sheer fragile beauty of Mozart's music. Transfixed, every last man stands gazing upward. This scene, Zornberg writes, provides an analogy for the uncanny phenomenon of holiness. Kedoshin tiyu, be holy, be transported to another realm. Consider this example. There's a verse in the Torah that goes like this. The Torah says, Ushmartem eschukosai, God says, guard my laws, ves mishpatai, and my principles, asher yase osam ha'adam, that a person should do them, v'chai bohem, and live by them, ani Hashem, I am the Lord your God. So there is a technical way that we interpret that verse. It is interpreted thusly in the Talmud, in the Gemara. V'chai bohem, you should live by the mitzvot of the Torah. V'lo shiyamos bohem, but you should not die observing the commandments of the Torah. From here we learn, in a case of a possible threat to life, the laws of the Torah set aside. V'chai bohem, God wants us to live by observing the commandments. God does not want us, by observing the commandments, God forbid, to die, to pass away. So therefore, the laws of Shabbos are set aside if there's the possibility of a threat to life, etc., etc. V'chai bohem. That's one way to interpret this verse. But there's another way to interpret it. V'chai bohem, and you should live by them. In other words, the purpose 
of fulfilling the mitzvos is v'chai bohem, an increased vitality in life. Listen to the words of the famous Sefer Ha'amegdavar. A person's soul should enjoy, should benefit with this spiritual emotion of the mitzvah that they are performing. By performing mitzvahs, we should have a spiritual vitality, a sense that we are now really alive. V'chai bohem, increased vitality in life through the performance of mitzvahs. Doing mitzvahs should make us feel really alive. The great spiritual danger we all face is languishing, doing mitzvos in a rote manner. We refer to a person as Shomer Shabbos. They guard the Shabbos. They observe it. They do it. But do they enjoy it? Are they excited about it? Does it make them more alive? To combat that languishing, our densely packed parsha of mitzvos starts with Mozart. It starts with Kedoshim Tiyu. It is an exhortation to us not only to do the mitzvos that are in the parsha and all the other mitzvos, but to do them with an aspiration towards love of God. To do them with an aspiration that through the mitzvos, the fullness of life is joy at its most intense. Kedoshim Tiyu introduces us to the notion that performing God's commandments should lead us to v'chai bohem, greater vitality in our spiritual lives. And Kedusha, sanctity, holiness, can be understood as an aspiration to such vitality. A kind of discomfort is its baseline, a restlessness about all given situations. Here, one is not yet who one wishes to be. One seeks out a deeper and larger way to be, a more vital way to be. Kedoshim you be holy, challenges us to overcome our spiritual languishing. Bailey Newman considers a scene in a novel that she was reading. And the scene contains a powerful conversation between a mother and her son. The mother sits her son down in the kitchen 
and she takes out a straw broom and she furiously begins sweeping the floor. She then asks her son, which part of the broom is the most essential, the most fundamental? Is it the bristles or is it the handle? And the boy hesitates. He's not sure what the right answer is. And on and on, the mother pushes her son to answer this question while she is sweeping the floor with intense vigor. And finally, the boy responds and he says, I think the bristles are more fundamental because you can sweep without the handle just by gathering and holding the bristles together. So the bristles are the most essential part of the broom. That's when the mother explains to the boy, ah, you gave that answer because what you want to do with the broom is to sweep with the broom, right? It's because of what you want the broom for, isn't it? But the mother says, what if we wanted the broom for something else? What if we wanted the broom to break a window? Then the handle would clearly be the fundamental essence of the broom. It depends what you want to use it for. And Bailey Newman points out, sometimes some of us, many of us, we may have forgotten the function of our mitzvah brooms. What is the purpose of the mitzvah that we're doing it for? Sometimes we lose sight of that because we're languishing. We're just thinking of the immediate effect. But what if the purpose of the broom is not what we think it is? What if the purpose of the mitzvah is not what we think it is? What if the purpose of the mitzvah is to take us beyond languishing, is to give us the vitality of life? What if the purpose is to enable us to fulfill kedoshim to you, to reach a stage where it transports us, that action excites us, energizes us, and our languishing is left behind? And if we overcome that languishing in the way that we approach mitzvahs, it will be reflected in not only doing mitzvahs, but in how we do them with vitality, with excitement and enthusiasm. Kedoshim you as an introduction to the mitzvahs should ramp up our enthusiasm should ramp up our expectation of what we should be able to get out of every mitzvah we perform. Hmm. 
Several years ago, I was in Israel. And together, I went to shul. Now, it happens that I am a levi. And that means when there's birchas kohanim, the kohanim give the blessing. Outside of Israel, it's only on the holidays, but in Israel, it's every single morning. So every single morning, the kohanim come out to wash their hands. And a levi is there to wash them. Levi serves the Kohen. Kohen comes out, puts his hands out. The Levi put, pours the water over. I was in a small shul. I was davening. I was looking forward to washing the hands of the Kohanim. Here, I only get to do it a couple of times a year. But in Israel, it's every morning. What a beautiful mitzvah that I get to enjoy that I don't get to do so often. So I was really looking forward to this. I was in the shul, small shul, a little crowded. Man walks up to the sink, washes his own hands, and he goes back in. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm the lady. I'm standing right there. I mean, it's not like he thought there was no one there, so he had to wash his own hands. I'm standing right next to the sink. Why would a person stand next to a sink just outside of the, of the shul room right at the time when the kahanim are coming to wash their hands? Why didn't he let me wash his hands? Why did he wash his own hands? So I asked my brother. My brother lives in Israel, so he's more familiar with, not the, the laws, the laws I know, but the routine of how it goes. So I said to my brother, how come this guy didn't let me wash his hands? So he says to me, my brother said to me, were you near the sink? Said, yes, of course. I, I, I know it's Israel. I know people don't have patience. Yes, I was standing right next to the sink. He said to me, but were you holding the cup in your hand? No, I wasn't holding the cup in my hand. I figured he comes out. I'll say hello, I'll pick up the cup and I'll pour the water. That's not good enough. I should have been standing with the cup in my hand, ready to pour the water. I was like an American, you know, a lazy, laid back American, Canadian. I didn't have the alacrity. I didn't have the enthusiasm that I should have had. I learned my lesson. I learned it's like being on guard duty. <laughs> the door moves and that water is in my hand and I'm starting to pour it while he's still watching after that. But that's the lesson. You have to actively pursue mitzvot. You can't wait for them to come to you. And that's when a mitzvah is not just fulfilled, but it becomes transformative. And that's what we mean in the bracha, the blessing we say before we perform a mitzvah. The standard formula for a bracha before a mitzvah. Bracha to Hashem, bless you, God, King of the universe. Asher kiddushanu b'mitzvosav. You have sanctified us with your commandments. Vitzivanu, and you have commanded us, etc., etc. God has commanded us not just to do the mitzvahs, 
but to overcome spiritual languishing and to become sanctified, to become holier through those mitzvos. And that is what's introduced with the words, Kedoshim Tiyu, be holy. The portion of Kedoshim is not just a collection of miscellaneous mitzvos. It is an opportunity to approach these mitzvos and all the others in a different way. As a response to the call, Kedoshim Tiyu, be holy. As a response to the call, the high Bohem, live with more vitality spiritually. There is so much more to a mitzvah, any mitzvah, than simply doing it, languishing with it. There is the potential of kedoshim tiyu, of becoming holy through it. Holy, transformed, revitalized through the performance of God's commandments. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening and a wonderful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.